0: I'd like to start off with a bracha, if I may. Um, David just heard the news that he lost his brother, and um, what can we say? But to send our love and our thoughts and our condolences. And if you if you want to stay with us, then um, it would be an honour to dedicate whatever I have to say in his memory. So, um, I'd like to I'd like to carry on. Um, this is a little bit funny. Never done this before, but I'm carrying on a series that I started. It was really a cumulative argument that I was trying to make peace uh, built upon peace, built upon peace. We just had a five-month gap in the middle, which makes it a little bit a little bit tricky, a little bit difficult. Those of you those of you have been have been following carefully um, will have noticed by now that there's basically one central theme that runs through a lot of a lot of a lot of the things that I've been presenting, a lot of the ideas that I've been sharing um, during the course of particularly this visit and also last time. So I'd like to I'd like to I'd like to go through it, clarify it, make it clear, and try and connect it as clearly as I can to the teachings and the thinking of Martin Buber. Um, basically, what I'm doing in my life at the moment is collecting thinkers um, who I think fall into fall into the categories um, that i 'm talking about and can allow me to present an argument that I think is important and helpful um, for israel 's effort to live in peace um, if, if that effort is actually going on, hope it is. Um, for Israel's effort to live in peace, according to a structure that I think makes sense and is authentically Jewish. Basically, what I'm trying to do is to break down the normal distinction that we make between what is considered universal and what is considered what is considered particularist. Right, particularism and universalism are usually perceived as two things that are absolutely Um, opposites to each other. There are two sides of a dichotomy. And I'm looking at thinkers, I'm particularly interested in thinkers, and Buber is a classic example of this, who are trying to articulate a kind of universalism that is highly particularistic. Right? Now, that sounds like a little bit of a contradiction in terms and a little bit of a paradox. But if, if we trace this back, I'd like to trace it just a little bit back. Because last time that we spoke about this, it was months ago. So I'm going to remind you. And those of you who want to, I think this one is actually on, on iTunes, right? This one was, was, was up there. But I want to remind you um, about this distinction that I spoke about a while back between universalism and particularism. And if you remember back then, I referred to it with reference to the teachings of Immanuel Kant, and I made specific references on the Jewish level to Moses Mendelssohn. Right? Um, Moses Mendelssohn, I'm just repeating some of, the, some of the major points, but Moses Mendelssohn was, was the Jew who was hailed, uh, the first modern, first modern Jewish thinker. Whether or not that's true, I don't know, doesn't matter. But what characterizes his most important work, and his work is called Jerusalem. His book is called Jerusalem. What characterizes, I think, his most important work is his effort to distinguish between the universal components of Judaism and the particularist components of Judaism. And when he talks about the, the, the universal, he speaks about those categories, or those, those intuitions, which all human beings naturally know. And he gives it a Jewish articulation by saying that the universal was bequeathed to all of mankind in creation. Right? So we can talk about such things as knowing thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not kill, even Shabbat, right, having a day of rest. Um, there, are, there, are, there are certain categories within Jewish law and within Jewish thought that Mendelssohn describes as being universal. Next to them, he talks about the particular. And the particular is going to include all sorts of things that we would have never thought of on our own, that we would have never figured out, and that we don't have any sense of even wanting to share with the rest of the world. So tzitzit, right? For example, or tfilin, right? Or um, I mean, there's any number of very specific, blowing the shofar, um, uh, keeping Rosh Chodesh. I mean, there's any number of 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 highly particularistic. Jewish rituals, right? We had we had a discussion. I was going to say we had a discussion the other day about shatness. For those of you who who don't know what shatness is, it's the prohibition against wearing wool and linen in the same in the same garment. I think that particular discussion went over to Kilaim, which refers to different types of um, of um, the grafting of different types of plants together that you're not allowed to do if they don't come from the same, the same sort. And it applies also to... Kilaim also applies to the way in which animals are tied and yoked to wagons and so on and so forth. These are the kinds of things that no, nobody nobody would ever have thought up, right? So what Mendelssohn does is he gives us this sense... He draws a sort of a Venn diagram in words. He doesn't, he doesn't actually do anything graphic. But he draws a Venn diagram in words, and he talks about what is particular... About the Jewish world, he talks about what is particular in Christianity. Right, we could come up with all sorts of things which are particularistic to Christianity. They're taking communion, the credo. I mean, all sorts of things that we could say are particularistic to Christianity. And then we can look at a huge overlap, and this huge overlap of the universal is shared by Jews and by non-Jews. And with this structure of there being an overlap, Mendelssohn is more or less convinced that we can coexist successfully with non-Jews around us and live in peace. There's this sense of there being a shared set of fundamental principles. So when you go off to your, your your little house, you can... You can keep your particularism. When I go off to my little house, I can keep my particularism. But we've got the parking lot in the middle, right, which which we all share and which we can all which we can all live in together. In many ways, the idea that Judaism overlaps in its universal components with with Christianity was essentially a conflict resolution theory. Right? It was a conflict resolution theory. We can say the things that are universal that we share are the things that allow us to coexist, to recognize each other's humanity, and to live and to live together. Now, within this context, and this was what I argued last time. Hang on, I really need a sip of caffeine. Of coffee. Caffeine. Who needs caffeine? Ah, okay. Within this context, I tried to present last time, five months ago, The argument that the Zionist movement, and that's the subject of this little breakfast series, the argument that the Zionist movement was in many of its components. It was an attempt at accomplishing Mendelssohn's vision just in a slightly different way. And the idea was that rather than different peoples coexisting within a context of European, European, European culture that's defined by shared universal values, the Jewish people would participate peacefully in the family or in the community of nations by establishing a state that could have its own particularisms. It could have its own particular features. If you read Herzl's visions for that Jewish state, it didn't have that many particularist features. He seemed to imagine a very, very European, French and German speaking place that was not, you know, it wasn't intense in its Jewish particularism. Um, that was Chadaam's major critique of Herzl, was that his, his, the intensity of his Jewish particularist vision was inadequate. But the idea was that we could establish a, a, a Jewish state that would allow the Jewish people to define their collective identity in a way that corresponds with the universal organization of collective political life in Western Europe or in Europe. This was, this was an attempt to, be, to peacefully integrate as part of the world. There was a sense of particularism. The state was to be Jewish. It was to be for Jews. And therefore, it would preserve and and perhaps bolster Jewish cultural identity. But fundamentally, the image was that the Jewish state would be a state like all other states, that would allow the Jewish people to be a people like all other peoples. This was a motto. Am kechol ha'amim. We want to be a people like all the other peoples. And the theory was that this would allow us to integrate and to live peacefully. Now, what I spoke about last time was this book, if you remember. Remember that I brought this along then? Kant's Perpetual Peace. Kant's Perpetual Peace is, I think, one of the most important texts of um, modern political philosophy written. And the thing that's striking about it is that it was written a couple hundred years ago, and it still dominates the way we think in terms of international politics and the way we think about peace. It's absolutely striking. Kant argues in this book that the idea of the nation state corresponds profoundly with the notion of universal coexistence. This idea, is that that the nation state can organize the life of its citizens peacefully. By relinquishing the power of the individual to the state, the state will regulate the life of, of the individuals who live within its power structure. So if I get into a fight. If I get into a fight, rather than drawing my sword, which was the medieval way of doing it, which was actually a direct appeal to God right, for adjudication. I'm going to fight, and God will make the just prosper. Rather than drawing my sword and pulling out holy violence, the idea of the nation state was to secularize the monopoly on violence. It was to create institutions that would secularize the monopoly on violence and the result of this was that i could appeal to a court i could appeal to a i could appeal to any kind of state body for adjudication and that state body would have the power i'm giving it the power to make a decision in my in my to make a ruling in my dis in my disagreement and then to enforce that decision by using its power whether that meant forcing me to pay money, whether that meant forcing me to to accede to the ruling of a court or throwing me into a prison, which is a pretty violent thing to do as well. Um, The state held on to this power, and it took that power away from something that was considered sacred, right? There was no direct appeal to God for justice. This was one of the key principles of the state. It was a secularization of the regulation of life doesn't mean that people couldn't be religious within the state. Kant was very religious. But religion didn't function as the organizing principle for the regulation of communal life. And at the same time, as Kant recognized this, he also recognized another problem. And his other problem was that if the state monopolizes all of this power, then the state has the ability to create or to generate state generated force and power, and states will end up going to war against each other. Kant's essay, Perpetual Peace, is his attempt at coming to a resolution of that challenge. Right, This is his deal. Basically, he argues that the way to solve this problem is never to interfere with the secular sovereignty of the state, but to put above the states an organization that he refers to as a League of Sovereigns, Right, You hear it now, and you go, oh, wow, that's basically, he gave, he gave birth to the idea of the League of Nations, which turned into the United Nations. Let's give birth to the idea of a League of Sovereigns. And the League of Sovereigns will rule because people will understand that it is in their rational best interests to observe the power that they give to this League of Sovereigns because of their own, because of their own humanity. He basically assumes that there is a universal human value. And if Western civilization can evolve itself to the level of this kind of rationality, then the peoples of the world will be able to live together in peace. Now, at the same time as this idea was crashing, crumbling and falling apart, And that's basically two major things happened. One was a fellow called Hegel came along, and Hegel... Hegel argued, I think pretty obviously, that if you have super state structures, then they will be looking for their individuality. They'll never be one. People will always want their individualism. So they might make big individual groups, and they'll turn into allied forces, and we'll have allied blocks that that will struggle against each other. And people were interested in Hegel's thesis when he published it at the beginning of the 19th century. But by 1915, I think the penny had dropped. Right? By the time the First World War was underway, it was absolutely clear that these states were generating the most incredible power of destruction that had ever been seen in the world before. I'm just reading the moment, a fascinating book. I won't quote from it because I'm in the process of reading it. I downloaded it from the internet, by the way. You can buy it in bookstores, but I, I just found it online and downloaded the whole thing and, and, and printed it up. It's called Nations Have the Right to Kill. And it's a fascinating analysis of of the way in which the 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 nation state became a value that people just wanted to die for valiantly in and of itself it's striking the descriptions here that absolutely blew me away are the destri- the descriptions of the battles in the trenches you've got 500 miles of trenches right facing each other during a period of 2 to 3 years this is the most amazing i just I read this and I, ugh. During a period of two to three years, these trench lines moved approximately four or five miles. So there is no strategic gain here. These people were not trying to accomplish any kind of strategic gain. What happened was a game. It was a game. People took it in turns, one side and then the other side, to attack. At certain stages in the First World War, people were just walking. They weren't even shooting. They were just walking at the other side's trenches, because what else are you going to do, run? So they just walked. And the other side just mowed them down with machine gun fire. And then, and then it went the other way. And people were writing in their diaries before they went out. There's incredible records in this book. I really recommend it. It's a fascinating read of how people wrote about the glory of being able to die for the state, being able to die a good death for the nation. Vive la France and all that stuff. So. What was happening at the same time as the Jewish people were articulating their vision of becoming national and participating in this universal, peaceful culture by saying, let's have a state too, was that the idea of the state was crumbling. The idea of the state was becoming very, very threatening was becoming very, very frightening. People were beginning to recognize that the state, and Kant here was wrong, that the state was capable of generating as much violence, as much willingness to kill and be killed as religion ever had, and on a scale that no religious culture had ever been able to manufacture. During the course of the First World War, the state mechanisms were generating tanks right, and, and weapons of war at a scale that was completely unimaginable before before this notion of the consolidated and centralized state was given birth to, and this is exactly the time it's so ironic, but this is exactly the time that the Jewish people are saying, we want to participate, we want our particularism to be expressed in the form of the national state so as we can coexist and live peacefully with the rest of the world. It's a real problem. It's a real issue. That's where Zionism, that's the context in which the Zionist discourse is really taking place. In between the wars, this is the context in which the Zionist discourse is taking place. Another sip. That was Hebrew, Aramaic, and now English. Good morning. so this is, this is this is the context this is the context in which the Zionist the Zionist discourse is taking place Now there's there's one other thing that I think needs to be needs to be put on the table Not only is the universalist dimension of nationalist politics being recognized for its inherent violence The monopoly of power. You know, by the way, the wonderful critic of this, the person who really exposed it, anybody who's interested in reading, the most brilliant critic of this whole phenomenon was the French historian Michel Foucault. Right, he's the person who really, who really took the idea of the modern state and turned it upside down. Said, well, it's monopoly and violence is crushing all kinds of things. So he looked at the way, the ways in which mad people were cornered off and stuck into, and stuck into homes, and the way in which the the, the prison system monopolized its power. He goes through all the various different institutions that allow the state to function with this notion of normal society by shutting off all the people who don't quite fit in. I mean, it's really striking. You read it and you, and. It really is quite a shock. Um, I strongly recommend um, reading Foucault on this, his history of madness, and whatever. There's there's, there's a book called, um, not Crime and Punish, Punish, and it'll come back to me. It'll come back to me. But Foucault's analysis of, of, of these institutions that allow for the state to regulate itself and to present this image of regulating itself while ultimately what it's doing is shutting down and shouting and and silencing so many of the voices of the people who don't fit in. Now, this is something that I think was crumbling at the same time as the the violence of, of the state structure was being recognized. The idea that universalism was not really very universal was starting to surface as well. So when Kant talks about the universal rationality of humanity in its highest forms. What he's really talking about is the mentality of German, white, educated men. And it's really important to recognize the irony of this. It's really, really important to recognize the irony of this. German, white, educated men equals the universe. right? That, that was the problem. That was the problem. And there were lots of people who were surfacing and coming along and saying, well, what about us? And not least amongst them, women, which is a dramatic turning process in the 20th century. We have the rebellion of the colonies that are basically saying, well, we don't necessarily accept the supremacy of your culture over ours. So maybe what you call universal is actually just crushing out and destroying what would be universal if you could listen to us and pay attention to us. And what is really striking as we go, and now moving a little bit later into the 20th century, what's also, I think, very, very significant is the immigrant populations that start moving around. And we end up with this Western Europe that isn't really dominated anymore by white German Educated men. We have all sorts of other people and all kinds of other colors, and there's and there's even gender variety. There's all sorts of genders knocking around. So these issues create these issues create a, a an irony about Kant's notion of the universal, and this irony, I think, underlines the most important point that I want to make, which is that Kant's notion of the universal was inherently violent. Even though the effort was to accomplish something that could create a perpetual peace, Kant's notion of the universal was inherently violent. Now, there's a fellow who I mentioned. I'm not sure if I mentioned him a couple of months ago. And if I did, I'm sure you don't remember him. His name was Shmuel Aharon Tamarit. Did I mention him? Shmuel Aharon Tamaret was one of those really interesting Jewish thinkers. He he was a, he was a, a a participant in the Fifth Zionist Congress. And the reason he participated in the Fifth Zionist Congress is because he was a so he was a Galician Charedi, right? But he struggled like hell against the rejection of Zionism by the Haredim. Right. His whole move was to argue that, the, that, that Zionism, would, Zionism would enrich the life of Jews, and he struggled very, very vigorously against, against the, the Haredi, the ultra-Orthodox rejection of the Zionist idea. The Zionists were basically, um, were basically secular, Zionist thinking was basically secular. And the, the ultra-Orthodox rejected Zionism not, as most people think, because they thought we needed to sit around and wait for the Messiah to come before we could establish a Jewish state or live in the, or live in the land of Israel. That was really, if you look at the text from the period, that was really a secondary issue. That was, never the, that was never the dominant voice in the anti-Zionist religious camp. The anti-Zionist religious camp objected to Zionism because they objected to secular Judaism. That was the issue. That was what bothered them. And Tamarit was the one who struggled very hard to, to convince Israel, these kinds of organizations, ultra-Orthodox organizations, to become part of the Zionist movement. And in respect of that, he was invited to participate in the Fifth Zionist Congress. He walked out. He walked out and he wrote a book which is just striking. I've never seen anything like it. This is a Haredi, ultra-Orthodox, Torah-based Jew who writes a book called Judaism and Pacifism, in which he argues vigorously that the way in which the Jewish state is being described by the Zionist movement is a huge mistake. They're buying into Western culture, and they don't realize that they're dragging the Jewish people into an endless cycle of war that we have been free from for thousands of years. And that this will corrupt and destroy the Jewish tradition. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. In 1907, he's saying this stuff. Unbelievable. So it's within this context, it's within this discussion, that I'd like to look at Martin Buber. All right? The question, the question that Martin Buber is trying to deal with, Buber is a Zionist. Buber wants there to be a Jewish state. Buber also has a sense or a vision of something that, that we could talk about in universal terms. right? But Buber is very, very cognizant of the problematics that I'm talking about now. Buber is very much aware of it, as are other Jews. There's a fellow called Yehuda Benovich, who nobody has ever heard of. He was basically, He's not particularly famous, because he, he was basically a translator. Uh, the first, he, he, wrote, he was translating um, philosophical texts into Hebrew in the 1920s. And he was the first person to translate Kant's perpetual peace into Hebrew. In Hebrew, he called it HaShalom HaNitzchi. And in his introduction to his reading of Kant, he says there's one big problem with Kant, and that is that he doesn't pay attention to what Jewish tradition has to say about peace. Kant is actually very dismissive of the Jewish tradition here. He, he writes the way many... The way many Christians in his period wrote about Judaism, he talks about the angry God who slaughters the people all over the place in the Bible, and he's you know he's, he's very violent and, he, and, and, and jealous God, and, and the, the image of the Jewish God, the biblical God that comes out of, of these kinds of readings of the Bible is an image that, that, that paints Judaism in very, very violent terms. And Christianity has somehow moved in a step forward and sublimed much of this violence into something that is internal in the language of internal struggle. And then the secularization of politics is supposed to complete the process. And Benevich is the one who kicks up and says, what are we talking about? What's he talking about? The Jewish tradition has a tremendous amount to say about about peace. Jewish prophecy has a tremendous amount to say about peace. If only the Jewish state could implement Kant, and learn from the Jewish tradition at the same time, we could accomplish something extraordinary. So that's what Benevich writes. Buber, I think, is the thinker who stands out more than any other as the person who tries systematically to put this this into action as a form of Zionism, as a form of Zionism. before we look at the little handout, I'd like, to tell you, I'd like to tell you a little story. Can I tell you a story? Right, it's morning. You know, you need, you need a little story to get the day started. It's actually a Hasidic story. It's a Hasidic story. The story goes as follows. Once upon a time, Buba wrote a lot about Hasidut. Once upon a time, there was a man who had six daughters. And... Back in those days, if you had six daughters, right, you can imagine him living in a little shtetl somewhere or other. If you had six daughters, you had six daughters to marry off. Right? And he was very, very, very poor. And they all lived in this miserable little hovel. And he had no, he had no money to, to, to marry them all off. And he used to worry about this and fret about this all day and all night and nibble at his fingernails. But one night, he has a dream. And in his dream, he saw himself walking for three days. And he walks, and he walks, and he walks, and he walks for three days and for three nights until he arrives in this beautiful, beautiful town. And in this town, at the top of the town, there's a massive, magnificent, golden marble palace. And underneath the palace there's this beautiful river that flows out from the palace into gardens. And over the river, there's a gorgeous, stone bridge and he sees himself walking underneath the bridge and he starts digging in the ground underneath the bridge and he finds this huge box of treasure and he wakes up in the morning and he tells his wife you're not going to believe what i dreamt last night and she says you're an idiot so he ignores it and he forgets it and he goes and he goes off to work the following night he has the same dream and on the third night the same dream recurs and he said i i can't put up with this anymore this is a sign i have to go and he gets up and he goes And he packs up a little bag, and he starts walking. And he walks for three days and for three nights. And sure enough, at the end of three days and three nights, he comes to this beautiful town, and he sees a beautiful golden palace with marble arches around it and a beautiful river flowing out from the palace into gardens. And there's a bridge over the river. And he goes underneath the bridge, and he stops there, and he pulls out his spade from his bag, and he starts digging. And after he's been digging for about a minute, he all of a sudden feels this huge, big, fat, hairy hand on his shoulder. (coughs) grabbing him and saying come with me and he gets arrested and he gets thrown into prison and he sits in a dungeon and he's plutzing, oh what am i doing what have i done and he's sitting there and he's plutsing he's feeling miserable after he's been sitting there for a couple of days he's pulled out for trial and he's brought before the king and the king says to him what are you doing desecrating my my beautiful my beautiful gardens and this fellow doesn't really know what to say so he decides there's nothing nothing he can do He'll tell the truth. So he tells the story. He tells about his daughters. He tells about his his dream and why he got up and why he did what he did. And the king looks at him and he bursts out laughing. He says, "You're the biggest idiot I've ever met. You know what? I'm going to let you go, not because you're innocent, but because you're an absolute fool. And do you want me to tell you why? Why you're a fool? I've been having this dream night after night after night about this." miserable little hovel, and this silly little pesky family with six daughters, and underneath the floorboards, in the middle of this little hovel, I keep on dreaming that there's this huge, huge box of treasure. What, you think I'm going to go there? And this fellow listens, he says, okay, so your majesty, thank you, thank you, and he runs back, and instead of taking three days, he's back in two days, and his daughters are coming out to meet them, and he pushes them out the way, and they think he's gone mad, and he starts pulling up the floorboards, and underneath the floorboards, what does he find? A huge box of treasure. Now, the Hasidic story is, don't go looking elsewhere. Look look, look for what's underneath your own floorboards. And you'll find, look in yourself, and you'll find the inner treasure. Those of you who are familiar with the Hasidic stories about Zusha, who wants to know how he can be like Moshe Rabbeinu, right? This is, you know, how, but the answer is, why do you need to be like Moshe Rabbeinu? You're, you're Zusha, be Zusha. Everyone knows this story, right? So. What Buber does is he takes this story and he turns it absolutely on its head. He turns it upside down. He writes the most brilliant analysis of this story in his book on Hasidic tales. And Buber says the following, that this fellow would never have been able to find anything under his floorboards had he not traveled. It was the purpose of his journey It was the purpose of his journey to be able to discover himself. That the encounter with the other, what Buber refers to as the I-thou encounter, is the encounter that allows for the discovery of self. Buber is much, much less interested in individualism than he is in what can be discovered through the process of dialogue. It's the encounter with otherness that opens up my sense of what, is, what are the limitations of the world. And that encounter with otherness allows me to return to myself a much deeper and much more enriched human being. This is perhaps the way that Buber would understand travel. But more deeply, I think it's the way that he understands the religious quest. The journey towards God, the attempt to encounter something transcendent, is fundamental to the, to, to the bolstering of, of self. Or if I put it in slightly different terms, so as you see where I'm going with this, the journey of the particular towards something which is universal. Towards something that is that is beyond and that is outside. Coexistence is made possible not by finding a place in the universal, but having redress to something that is beyond myself, that allows for a return which leaves me changed. It turns me into a different person. So Buber has a notion of the universal, but his notion of the universal is highly particularistic. In other words, his experience of coexistence is an experience that is rooted in a journeying between positions an encounter with a perpetual challenge that's always going to be more and more other from myself. The more I enrich myself in each journey, the more the journeys that follow challenge me. Right? We're familiar with that. We're familiar with that. That's an experience that we're familiar with. If we read something a hundred times, that's when we start to notice new things in it. right? If you go to the same place, time and time and time again. And you keep coming back, even though it's more familiar, you start to discover the nuances. You start to understand that place better and more deeply. Buber's idea is that this, this is the universal. The universal is not something that is possessed or owned by German white men. The universal is something that lies beyond us and is ultimately rooted in the notion of the, of the infinity of the concept of God. So if you've been following, what Buber has done is to move the concept of the universal from something that in Kantian thought is fundamentally secular, and he's turned it into something that is fundamentally theological. The universal is the attempt to reach endlessly towards the realm of theology. And what Buber does is to articulate this as a vision for the state of Israel. Buber is a Zionist thinker, and he articulates this as a vision for the state of Israel. Now he's written, He wrote so much about this that I had to choose one passage that I thought would really, would really crystallize it for you. So I did. And I chose from Buber's collection, Israel and the World, I chose his essay on the spirit of the Jewish people and the world today. Now, what Buber does in this particular essay is he takes the concept of nationalism as a universal concept. All peoples should live as nations, right? And he turns it on its head. He turns it upside down. And he does so by using a classical Jewish text. And the classical Jewish text is a midrash that appears in Dvarim Rabbah. Right, which is the Midrash on the book of Deuteronomy, on the book of, of Dvarim. Those of you who are familiar with the end of the book of Deuteronomy, with the end of Dvarim, will know that just before he dies, Moses sings a song to the Jewish people. Right, It's called Parshat HaAzinu. HaAzinu HaShamayim Right, Those of you who are familiar. And one of the things that goes on in HaAzinu is that Moses describes how the people of Israel will come to the land of Israel and he also describes how God has allocated for every nation a different piece of land. So there's the land of Ammon, there's the land of Moab. There are all the nations that surround Israel. And each, one, each one has its own boundaries and its own borders. The Midrash comments on this and says that each one of the peoples on its own land has an angel that supervises it. Right? That there is an angel that supervises each nation. Right? Each people has its, own, has its own angel looking over it. The Jewish people, instead of having an angel, the Jewish people have God. That's the Midrash. That's what the Midrash says. Now, let's have a look and see what Buber does with it. Third paragraph. There is a tradition about 70 angels. Sarim is the word for an angel, and it also means a prince. Right? We also use it in modern Hebrew to refer to government ministers. Um, when you see the description, you can decide whether or not that's appropriate. Known as princes, who are set in charge of the 70 nations of the world. That's a Jewish typological number that there are 70 nations of the world. It's just a typology, Shivim Amin. Each of these princes supervises his own nation, acting as its spokesman before the throne of glory. When their respective nations are embattled, they too become involved against each other. The princes, are the real victors and the real vanquished. And their wars, victories, and defeats, their ascents and descents on the mighty ladder are what historians characterize by the name of history. Each of them has a purpose and function of his own. And so long as the prince does his part, so long as he accomplishes his purpose and fulfills his function, he is entrusted with power. Let's just stop there for a second. Buber is taking the Midrash, right? He's taking the Midrash, and he's more or less describing it. But the way in which he's describing it, the way in which he's framing it, smacks very audibly of the context in which he is writing and not of the context in which the Midrash was being composed, right? He's characterized the Shivim Amin, and their, the 70 nations and their respective princes in the language of 20th century nationalism. Right? What he's talking about here is that the prince stands for whatever is essential about the spirit of a nation. Right The spirit of a nation now that 's a concept that today we tend not to talk about, particularly because of multiculturalism we don 't really talk about it. I mean you can hear the American way, the american dream superman we 'll talk about that stuff but but I suppose it exists but it 's very difficult nowadays, particularly in Europe, to talk in those terms. but if you go back to the time that Buber was writing, then there is a deep belief in there being some kind it 's highly secular it 's highly secular, but it 's a spiritual Notion of the essence of the collective national identity, people who live on a particular territory, speak a particular language, eat a particular kind of food, listen to a particular kind of music, dance a particular kind of dance, and share a loyalty to each other and are prepared to sacrifice their children for this shared spiritual identity, right? That's the essence of nationalism. This is what Buber is saying. And what is that nationalism for? What's its purpose? What's its content? To fight. These nation states are embattled with each other. These princes are embattled with each other. He's giving here a Jewish midrashic take on the First World War, Okay. So they use power. And that's what we call history. The way in which they battle with each other. That's so true, by the way. When I went to high school, I don't know about you, but history was all about battles and wars. It was the only thing we studied. Oh, no, we learned how people tortured each other as well. I remember that. We learned about the stocks. It's amazing to think back. God, that was what we learned in high school. We learned about wars and, and punishments and tortures. That was basically what history was all about. God, amazing. Okay, so... Each of them has a purpose and function of his own, and so long as the prince does his part, so long as he accomplishes his purpose and fulfills his function, he is entrusted with power. But he is responsible to his master and is required to render an accounting to him. Therefore, when he becomes so intoxicated with power as to forget who he is and what his function is, arrogantly assuming himself to be the lord and master... Then the hand of his sovereign falls upon him, falling either in the form of lightning, which flings him into the abyss of nothingness, or gradually as a steady rain, which carries him little by little down to the abyss of nothingness. I'm very sensitive to writing style. I don't like the repeat of abyss of nothingness, and I'm going to blame the translator and assume that Buber did it better in the original German. But the point here is to argue, in a nutshell that nationalism is self-destructive. That's what Buber is arguing. Buber is a Zionist. He's about to articulate a theory of Jewish nationalism. But what he's describing here is nationalism, as the world knows it, is self-destructive. He's one of those Zionist thinkers who is saying, we want a nation state, but not am We don't want to be like the nations. The Jewish nation state, in Buber's description of it, has to be fundamentally different, which sounds like a highly particularist notion. What would be the content of this fundamental difference? Now, it is said that the Jewish people, too, have a prince appointed over them. But there are those who assert that the children of Israel refuse to accept the yoke of any angel. Rejecting all yokes except that of the kingdom of God and all authority save that of the very Godhead. Now here he is introducing in his play on the Midrash, the idea that on the one hand, Judaism is different. Jewish nationalism is different. Right? Because everyone else has a prince and we rejected the idea of a prince. We said, let's have... Direct dominion under God. But on the other hand, all of the princes are answerable to God. So in Buber's construction of this, we have a description of something that is highly particularistic, right? The Jews are under God while everybody else has a prince, so we're different. But on the other hand, all the princes are under God too, and we're directly under God, and therefore we are fundamentally connected to the source of whatever it is that is connected to everybody else. So Buber has this very subtle play here in which I think he is arguing that Jewish particularism is universalist. Now, what does that mean? How does that play out? And it is alone this latter belief in the light of the world view and conception of history held by the Jewish tradition as a whole, which we see has an inner connection with the totality of thought concerning the relationship between Israel and the divinity. The source of the people of Israel is to be found not in that that world of multiplicity, where princes contend with one another, but rather in the world of the one truth, which indeed reveals only a hint of its essence to human beings. So first of all, we are connected to something absolute, but at the same time we don't know very much about it. We only have a hint of it. But even that hint is adequate for man and nation to know that there is one truth above them and that furthermore neither that people nor the prince of that people is the possessor of the truth, its sole possessor being the prince of princes and the lord of the world. So the question is, what is that truth? What is that truth? And being connected to that truth would be for Buber the essence of Jewish Collective identity and the purpose of having a Jewish state. So here is the truth. I'll tell you what it is and then we'll turn the page and I'll show it to you. Because it's a striking, striking idea. I teach in a university. That's what I do for a living. I teach in a university. And basically what we do, our business in the university, is to refine and define distinctions and differences. That's the purpose of what we do. If I write an article, I have to explain why other people said this, this, and this, and this, and this, then I need to explain why what I am saying is different, which is why I'm wasting the ink and the paper. right? What we do is we look for definitions. And what, what do definitions do? They limit. They characterize, they, they, they give us a clearer sense of distinctions so as we can understand the differences between things and therefore refine our understanding of them. Right? This is a fundamental feature of rational, enlightened thinking. is we look for definition, Right? you go to the doctor and he gradually or she gradually rules out a whole bunch of candidates for accounting for the particular pain that you have and draws distinctions between this and this and this and this until we narrow it down as finely and as precisely as we can. And as we try to narrow it down and define it as precisely as possible, we can give the pinpointed correct treatment. We look at phenomena, we try to make distinctions. That's what all the scientific disciplines do. We look at literature, so we look, well, no, that's an alliteration. That's not quite the same as a repetition. That's a metaphor. It's not quite the same as a simile. We look at all of these distinctions in order to to be able to see the differences. We talk about contextualizations. What's true of the 12th century isn't exactly true of the 13th century. And that's how historians can trace processes of change, looking at the distinctions and then following the connections between distinctions, which will allow us to construct a narrative how we got from point A to point B. That's what rational thinking does. Buber argues that this great truth in the sky that he's talking about, this great secret in the sky, is that the world is actually moving in the opposite direction. Now, going in the opposite direction does not mean the blurring of distinctions. It's not about the blurring of distinctions. But Buber's argument is that people And humanity and creation has an an inherent desire, a fundamental thrust, to unite. It has a fundamental thrust to unite, to come together. A tremendous proportion of our problems in the world are caused by this thrust to unite. Because we start fighting with each other, Because we are basically trying to unite. I've argued this before. I don't know if you've ever heard me say it. But one of the most um, striking causes of conflict in the world is the desire for peace. People go to war over peace all the time. All the time. People fight over wanting to be together. All the time. How are we going to be together? We don't manage to be together. And the process of coming together is the source of a conflict. But there is some kind of a mysterious force that allows us that allows us to come or to feel that we can come together and that the world ultimately will culminate in a in a coming together of its different components. What Buber argues, and this is one of the consistent themes that runs through his thinking, and it runs through his Zionist thinking as well. Is that the Jewish nationality is supposed to play the function of facilitating this kind of coming together by having redress for otherness, not to each other, but to something transcendental. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of the the reports of astronauts, right? When they when they fly out into the they fly out into outer space and they look at the earth in one direction, they see this huge, beautiful blue glistening ball. And then they look out into the stars, right? And you look back at the Earth and you say, what the hell are they doing down there? What are they doing? Why are they doing that? Right? And you hear this. You hear these reports from, you know, astronauts who are landing on the moon and this kind of thing. And looking down at the beauty of, of, and the tranquility of the planet and being overwhelmed by our inability to coexist on it. So there's something that, that, that is in that experience of the astronaut that Buber is intuiting here, that, the, that the, 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 in, the I-thou encounter with the transcendental other has a fundamental function of facilitating a kind of unity that is inconceivable in a world that is ruled by princes. A nationalism that is rooted in something universal, its particularism is defined by something universal and that universality is by its definition ill conceived unknown partially recognized we don't get to know it it's open ended this is his vision of how nations can ultimately come together if you turn the page you'll see where he says it and he asked this question he asks this question what is it that we are what is it that we are trying to do Do we want to become like the rest of the nations of the world or do we want to be unique? Do we have some special purpose to fulfill? And if so, what would constitute its fulfillment? Top of 186. There is a purpose to creation, there is a purpose to the human race. One, we have not made up ourselves or agreed to among ourselves. We have not decided that henceforward this, that, or the other shall serve as the purpose of our existence. No, the purpose itself revealed its face to us, and we have gazed upon it. Again, this cannot be defined in terms of concepts. Right? Definition, conceptualization is the opposite of what we're talking about. Yet we can know and express the fact that unity... Not division and separation is the purpose of creation, and that the purpose is not an everlasting struggle to the death between sects or classes or nations. Our purpose is the great upbuilding of peace." Wow. That's, that's, you know, that's a poster board thing for me. It's just perfect. It's incredible. What Buber is suggesting here, and he suggests it consistently, what Buber is suggesting here is that the Jewish state's purpose is the great upbuilding of peace, that the Jewish people are capable of doing it because they are not ruled by any prince, but because their sense of what is legitimately existing in the world is absolutely unlimited because of the uniqueness of the I thou relationship with the transcendental. Buber imagines what this needs to be, how this needs to look in order for a political expression of this idea to justify the notion of separating the Jewish people from the rest of the world and bringing them together in a state. His image of how this would play out is extremely controversial. I'll say it to you briefly, very briefly. It's extremely controversial particularly within 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 today's discourse. But this is the way Buber puts it. And by the way, he's not the only one. There's a bunch of people who do this. Before I tell it to you, I'll tell you just very briefly that Buber was the founding, one of the founding voices in an organization called Brit Shalom, which is the title of today's talk. And Brit Shalom was 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 often recognised as this sort of left wing camp in the Zionist movement, and the majority of the speakers in Brit Shalom. Brit Shalom basically broke up into two into two camps. There was a small circle of about six or seven very senior professors in the Hebrew University, and Buba was one of them. They were the intellectuals of Brit Shalom. Most of the other people in Brit Shalom were activists who were engaged in all sorts of political campaigns of all sorts sorts of purposes. And basically, the thing that characterized Brit Shalom was that they argued that we cannot establish the state of Israel before the Palestinian problem is solved. Their argument was, solve that problem, then build the Jewish state, not the other way around. That was their argument. And their voice was heard. And it was important until one day in 1942, where it got completely crushed. The turning point is absolutely clear. One day, 1942, the Biltmore Conference The the thinkers of the Zionist movement came together, recognized that the whole story had been redefined by the final solution, and everything changed. Everything changed. This whole post-First World War discourse got completely lost. And people confused the Second World War for something that it wasn't. They forgot that the Second World War was a national war as well and became deluded that it was somehow a war about the forces of good against the forces of evil. Good and evil can play out on much, much smaller stages than they did in the Second World War. If it wasn't for nationalism, none of this would have happened which, by the way, is the thesis of this book that I'm reading. But the the the, the turning point of 1942 crushed this whole agenda, and it got lost. But these fellows in Breit Shalom wanted to solve the problem before establishing the State of Israel. And the urgency of providing a homeland for the refugees of Europe took over everything else, and, and, and this whole voice got crushed. But what Buber said was different from the vast majority of his crowd. There were two or three like-minded members of Brit Shalom who were saying what Buber was saying. And he was saying that we don't need to solve the Palestinian problem so as the state of Israel can be founded on ethical grounds. That wasn't what Buber wanted to say. Buber wanted to say that if the Jewish people was going to be a people that defined its nationalism in terms of the monotheistic unified God, in terms of this I-Thou relationship that puts our particularism into the discourse of the universal, if the Jewish people want to do that, then the only way in which the Jewish state can be fully Jewish is if it is not exclusively Jewish. That connects a little bit with what I was talking about yesterday. When we spoke about Freud. So you'll see how you can see how these themes interconnect. But Buber is arguing that the Jewish state is Jewish by virtue of its not being exclusively Jewish. That's what makes Jewish nationalism fundamentally different. Now that's an idea that is a response to a reality. He's looking at the land of Israel. Unlike many Zionist thinkers, he recognizes this is not an empty land, you know, a land with no people for a people with no land. I think Buber sees that that's not the case. He understands that that's not the reality. And his, his, his theological response to that is to say, hmm, this must mean something. This must be telling us something. Now politically, his position was considered very, very radical it was considered very inappropriate because it was a direct result. It was it was in the post-1942 discourse, he was not doing what the Jewish people needed to have done. So nobody could hear what he was saying. But I think that 62 years down the line, we can now ask ourselves the question, do we want to be like every other nation in the world? Or do we want to be different? And we can ask that question not in terms of, are we better or are we worse? Because I don't find these kinds of hierarchies helpful or convincing or compelling. But we can ask the question, are we doing something Jewish with the idea of nationalism? And what Buber is suggesting is that Zionism is not about having a national state for the Jews, but it's about articulating a Jewish notion of particularist nationalism. And that notion of particularist nationalism is defined by its very internationalism. It's a very, very striking idea. Now, did Buber know how to implement this in a real politics? Absolutely not. Do I know how to implement this in a real politics? Absolutely not. But the discourse itself, I think, is important. The discourse itself, I think, is important. It's part of the Zionist idea. And it allows us to consider the possibility. And Buber is not the only example. And on Friday, I'm going to show you another example from a place that you would not expect. And we're going to look at the thinkers of Gushemunim. Not just Rav Cook, We're going to look at the thinkers of Gushemunim and see similar, similar ideas there. Striking. Do you know who Gushemunim is? The settler religious Zionist Ben Akiva camp. But the idea in a sentence is that for Buber, the purpose of Zionism was not peace for the Jews. The purpose of Zionism was world peace. That's the way Buber understood the Zionist idea. That was the objective. We will establish a Jewish state to create a new model of statehood that will issue a corrective to the things that Kant got wrong, that Hegel noticed, and that the First World War proved beyond doubt. That was Buber's understanding of the Zionist idea. I think it's an understanding that doesn't necessarily point in practical directions yet. But it allows us to start an ideological discourse from which we can become sensitive to the decisions that the State of Israel has made in defining its cultural identity, revisit them, and reconsider what it would take to really, really, really be Jewish. In this Jewish state of ours, so those are my thoughts. That's what I learned from Buber. More practical than that, we can't we can't draw from Buber. I think I'm in a position today to take a few steps forward on this issue, but that's that's another talk. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> Questions? Anybody want to ask a question? Yes, Bokashan. I think this is really interesting. Thank, thank you. you. Uh, one of the thing, reasons is that yesterday you talked about Freud uh, analyzing the underlying neuroses of the Jewish people, and this is an underlying, um, I guess, force, and they both are forces in a sense of within the content, within the basis of the Jewish people, and it's totally different view, and yet and you see a connection?
1: Between you know, Freud and Buber?
0: Well, the, the, the concept of the, the underlying neuroses and then Buber's underlying um, that the relationship, the I-thou relationship. I, I'm not sure if I can see that connection. You might, you might have to explain no, it to right, me a little bit right, more, but I can see a different connection between the two talks. Right, right. Uh, the connection that I would make is the connection between what I think is a very authentically Jewish Buber's articulation of something that, that feels very authentically Jewish. And it's so interesting to me that that resonates with what we heard when Saeed tried to analyze what was going on with Freud. And the idea that many people find offensive, but I'm prepared to say it, even on recording, is that I think that Saeed saw something very authentically Jewish in Freud. Um, And even though Sa'id is generally the guy we think of as as an enemy, I think think Sa'id actually flashes a light on something that when we look around at Jewish thought, and if you've been following different talks that I've given, I've made the same argument for Isaiah and for the rabbis and for all kinds of places that I think are very deeply authentic in Jewish thought. um, Sa'id understood something appropriate about what Jewishness can be all about. Um, and I think that that's, that's the connection that I find striking. Sometimes it takes somebody like Edward Said to, to point out to us where we are, where we are authentic. Um, so there, there, there is a connection. Mm-hmm. But I'm not quite sure if I saw the direct connection between Freud no, not, and not, Buber. Not direct, but a, yeah. a subtle kind of, yeah. kind of thing. Well, they're definitely both struggling with the same issue. Being Jewish in, an, in, a, in a wider context and, and what does that mean? And trying to articulate a vision of being Jewish as not being essentialist about our own particularism, but about having a sense of purpose that goes beyond it. Yes, in the, on that level, yes, they definitely the two the two the two definitely connect. That's what I'm doing. I'm collecting yeah. all these bits and pieces where I think this this argument can be made compelling. Anybody else? Yes, Ari. I don't know if you're going to speak about this. Next lecture is the final on Friday, but the whole Jewish messianic belief seems to tie into this. That's Friday. That's exactly Friday. That's exactly Friday. So it's about Chabad. Well, we're going to analyze be'munash um, lema We're going to analyze that on Friday. What does it mean? What does it mean to talk about a messianic vision that, when it becomes real, it stops being messianic? And and and. What is, what is messianism without messianism? That's what we're going to talk about on Friday. Okay? All right. Have a good day.